0: The Bro Show presents Doc Doc Goose, an examination of the world of sports science, medicine, and athlete management, with Dr. Alice McNamara, Dr. Rod Siegel, and Bill Tate. Doctors, welcome back to the Bro Show. How are we going?
1: Yeah, good. Thanks, Bill. How are you going?
0: Yeah, thanks. not too bad. How are you going, Rodney?
1: I'm going okay. From the bedroom studio, thank you.
0: Yeah, so this is our first crack at doing this um, virtually, which um, is gonna be a bit of a challenge. So obviously Alice and I are domiciled together, so we're okay and we're not socially distanced, but Rodney is socially distanced, only by a few kilometers though, just down the road. But um, where are you at the moment?
1: Yep, I'm just down the road from you in the Bayside suburbs uh, in my bedroom. I'm a good 10 or 15 metres away from my 18-month-old son who's currently sleeping in the room across the hall, so I'll well, try not to be too loud.
0: You'll enjoy <laughs> listening to your dulcet tones as you tick over here. <laughs> so we, we're using a bit of tech. We're, we're, um It's very 2020, this actually, because we're on teams together and we're looking at Rod here as we as we do this, so hopefully the sound quality works out okay. It actually sounds, sounds not too bad um, in my ears at the moment, but... We'll, yeah it's we'll not too
2: bad and it's nice to see someone without a mask on today because melbourne started wearing masks as it of today. is
0: yeah a couple of benchmark events today so the first one is yeah first day of masks in Masked melbourne
2: melbourne yep
0: yeah which has been interesting how did you find it alice you were out and, and about at work yeah say.
2: so i wear a mask in clinic and then i have a patient wearing a mask across the room from me and we socially distance and then i need to have a look at their wrist or their foot um and one lady said to me today do you think it's real, the pandemic?
0: Do you think it's real?
2: I don't know what to say. It's real. Yeah, it's real. <laughs> I don't know what she's doing wearing a mask if she doesn't think it's real, but I'm glad she's doing the right thing.
0: Well, she doesn't want to get a fine. It's $200.
2: <laughs> Just wearing a mask. Come on. No. It's, but it's really stressful time for everyone. and I, I know when you kind of – it's too almost unreal to be true, that cognitive dissonance comes in where you go, well, maybe, maybe we've made it all up.
0: Mm, no. But yeah, look it's a full-on day in Melbourne today. It's been um it's been a big build up. It's probably been overdue. I think, you know, it seems like most people are getting on board with it. There's a there's a few that are staunchly um sticking their head in the sand, but hopefully hopefully this makes a difference and makes an impact for us here.
2: Yeah, we really need to and I think for the benefit of the rest of the country if we can shut it down here then we'll be able to get on with things.
0: Yeah. But in terms of and and not to make light of that, but in terms of sport, Rodney, it, it's it isn't the most um, sport-related significant day in one sense because there, there is another benchmark that we're observing today as well
1: from a sporting sense. Yeah, well, the Olympics were meant to start today. Yeah. So yeah, a bit sad from from that point of view, and yeah, quite interesting that we're you know we were meant to do this two weeks ago. Um, I think exactly to the day two weeks ago, and then we got on the Tuesday the. Um, the news that would be shutting down again so that was quickly um put on hold so we could get the tech done with our tech guru um yeah but um recording today about a whole bunch of different things and you know on the day that we were meant to be starting the olympics
0: yeah yeah and we might touch on some of that in, in some of what we're talking about today and and what we are talking about today it's a bit of a different um subject for us but but one that we you know, started talking about a few weeks ago that we thought was relevant. Is it's it's a bit of an observation of some of the stuff that's been swirling around the interwebs, as Rod calls them. I think that's a technical term. Um, over over the last six months, as they relate to sport, in in reflection of what the pandemic has has created for the whole sporting community. So certainly not so much around the. The very real and, and very challenging um, financial side that it, that's caused to sport, but potentially some of the performance things that have been thrown up, and I guess we've loosely called it, you know, if we listen to Twitter, and it's it's certainly not a crack at, at Twitter by any means, but it's it's a, probably an observation that there has been a lot of opinions thrown out there, and there's probably a couple that we we thought we might like to sort of pick up on, and they're very general in nature, aren't they? They're not mm-hmm. they're not specifically attributed to any person or or peoples, but but sort of trends. Um, a few themes. Yeah, a few themes that we, we thought we'd like to explore and maybe you know try and see what of it's real and, and what of it might not be uh, necessarily the most real. So uh, yeah, we'll kick off into that.
2: Yeah, so the first one I think is just a general observation um, that the pandemic has thrown into disarray the world that most people are used to operating in and I guess when you reflect about how people manage themselves in a crisis, um, and I also think about how difficult it is for athletes at this time, when um, you know th- their goal, which is the Tokyo Olympic Games, which was meant to start today, has been changed the date. Um, how really in sport people and athletes are told that they need to learn how to control the controllables and to not worry about those things you can't control, and part of the training and the psychology around elite sport is about you know being able to put that thing to one side and just manage the skill and the task that you're meant to be doing and not necessarily worry about all those other things you can't control Um, and I think when you look at the general levels of stress and anxiety across society and across people you're being stressed about the things that they want to be able to control or would like to be able to have more autonomy to do better Um, a lot of the time people in in elite sport, I think, and in, in generally in sport in general, are just like, well, just let us get on with want the things that we can control.
0: Yeah. So, in your in your observation, is it is it saying you think sport actually prepares athletes potentially really well yeah. for dealing with something like this, where circumstances change and, and you know goalposts move for yeah. for one of uh, butchering and uh, yeah. sporting analogy. I thought yeah.
2: I'd start with a positive one because in a roundabout way, that is exactly what happens. I think lead up to every event, every major. Um, a selection event, or World Championships, or Olympic Games. There's always uh, some hiccup or some obstacle that may not be in your control that you need to work your way around. And that might be, um, like, if you're an outdoor sport, it's weather conditions, or it's some, you know, a, f- a fire alarm that goes off in a building that might have delayed some start time of something else. Or there's always something that coaches are very, you know, pr- used to preparing athletes for. You know, you might not be able to control all the things but you just focus on what the things you're meant to be doing and manage that rather than worrying about what everything else is happening around you. So I think, you know, in a way athletes are well prepared for things that are changed in front of their path.
0: Yeah, adapt and
1: overcome.
2: Mm-hmm. And the other uh, thing I, – I I, yeah, Rodney,
1: go ahead. I was going to say I think um, we, we've seen that, you know. I, I've been really impressed on the ground at the VIS to see how quickly – athletes coaches and support staff turn things around set up home gyms and all of those different bits and pieces it, it was really impressive to see how quickly those sorts of things occurred uh, you know and, and at a management level setting up systems all these different th- things and you're know, seeing it hands you know in the flesh at the vis and then being able to observe it across a number of different sports um you know across the country and, and institutes and so on across the country it, it, mm. yeah I, I think your point's spot on mac mm.
0: Yeah, so it's it's a bit of a two-edge um, you know, sword in a positive sense there. Number one, perhaps um, the, there is a benefit for, for those who've been able to be involved in elite sport because they're, they're, you do get practice at having to adapt and overcome more frequently maybe than, than you might get exposed to just in, in regular mm-hmm. life. So there's an advantage maybe going into that. But I suppose for young athletes and, and oh, for all athletes, and their support staff this is a bit of a microcosm of pressure that mm. that can test your mm. ability to to think laterally see the you know see the um, the bigger picture i suppose and, and yeah. be able to adapt to that
2: uh, yeah the, the lessons that can be taught to young athletes about reframing some sort of circumstances um, A fantastic uh, podcast on the british journal of sports medicine at the moment is dr jane thornton who um, those might remember she was an Olympic rower and world champion yeah. from Canada and she's now a sports physician in, in Canada. And she speaks very well about um, reframing uh, circumstances that are beyond your control as an athlete and how to set up your toolkit as an athlete um, to be able to manage yourself in this crisis. And um, part of it is uh, tapping into the skills that you know you have um, and, and part of it is also working out what else you can do in your environment to improve your sport. And as you get a bit further advanced and uh, mature in your sporting career, you understand that sports performance is so multifactorial. It's not just the physical and the physiological training and the skill acquisition, but it's actually the psychological, um, uh, it's the it's technical, it's do I sit down and watch more technical videos? Do I um, think about how I would attack this race strategy? Is it what I would need to manage some things in my outside environment so when I come back into my sport I can focus everything um, in the time frame I have up until the Major event, but it's about reframing and working out how you can best use this time. Yeah well. And there's another thought I thought had a um, another positive on this one that athletes are actually used to operating in environments that have boundaries and that are used to being in controlled squad environments. So Uh, We're in a circumstance at the moment where the government is um, putting pretty pretty firm boundaries on what we can do, and we observe that a lot of people don't like that. A lot of people question boundaries, a lot of people question instructions. Whereas often, as an athlete, you're in a team camp, you're told that this is what time you eat dinner, this is what time you um, um, this is what time you have to eat dinner. This is your training sessions for the week, and this is how you'll manage yourself. Um, But I think generally people don't like to be told how they're going to manage themselves, and I guess it's just interesting to observe. And I think if you have been an athlete, you can go, well, you know, I actually can see the greater good here, so I'm going to do it. Mm.
1: So if that's the case, Alice, why were you always 15 minutes late for everything?
2: Maybe I thought my schedule was more accurate. <laughs> 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 no, I always had time. You always fluffed around. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well,
0: in the end, we learnt to allow for it. It was um, Alice time.
1: Yeah. mm it's a good point you made, Mac around attending to some of the areas of performance that, you know, maybe you don't attend to. And one athlete that I work with is really strong physically. And sometimes he uses that, you know, prowess, um, you know, to cover up some of his mistakes. Mm. And in this situation, he he's really had the opportunity to work on the decision-making strategy, um, you know, more the mental side of his his sport. So, yeah, uh, h- him and his coach recognised that as, a, as an opportunity and uh, spent time doing exactly that. And it's actually, you know, I was catching up with him just last week and he said that it's really paying off, like seeing some really good improvements in that area.
2: Yeah, that's that's really interesting. I was hoping you guys could give a little bit of insight actually about, Um, areas you know athletes that haven't been able to do the sport that they've wanted to do you know you can't really go ahead and do diving for example if you're in lockdown or you can't do necessarily gymnastics the same level or even some of the water sports like what are they focusing on
0: i think that 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 there's no doubt around around the world not just in our environment the sports that uh that have probably found it harder are the ones the outdoor environment acrobatic sports because it's very hard to replicate that and being upside down and inverted and spinning is is so foreign that it's it's perishable and you don't want to get too far away from it so there's been a lot of lateral thinking to try and help in that Mm. environment you know um and we won't jump ahead but there's been other physiological sports that have that have probably found it easy to to kind of focus and, and nut down to making some really big gains in areas mm. they never actually get to work towards. We we heard a couple of weeks ago from Josh Dunkley Smith about how being able to take a bit of volume out of a training program can enable you to get stronger which can take you quite a long way forward and there's mm. there we examples around the world of athletes that have been smart and done that. Mm. The, the you know when as we were speaking to Josh uh, a British athlete in the in the British team broke their all-time 2k world record uh, not world record the british yeah, record. record in lockdown yeah, yeah. On, in lockdown yeah exactly and and we've got some good examples of that as well but um you know and an athlete we will hopefully speak to in the next couple of weeks roe webster will be able to talk to you about you know not being able to get in and into a pool and throw um the water polo ball around you know one of the best players in the world for many years but you know she's down the beach here Mentone, just swimming between the pylons and that you make do you get on with it mm-hmm. and um some of that ingenuity is going to carry them, I reckon, carry people forward as well. Well, good on you, Mac. that's a really positive one to start with.
1: So yeah, one thing that I've noticed is I guess the real polarization in the mindset around preparation at the moment. So obviously with all international events cancelled, um, you know some you know potentially overseas are still up and running or will be up and running down the track. Um, a lot of athletes are struggling or, that I've noticed in you know not exactly knowing what and when they're preparing for so you know what's the next event that i'm going to be doing when is that uh and therefore kind of their preparation in in general is a little bit in sort of disarray and on the other side of things we're we're seeing quite the opposite in some cases in people going right this is a real opportunity to get some really solid training done you know especially in the sort of physiology based sports um you know, where they can put their heads down and get some really big physical gains because it's not interrupted by travel, scheduled events, you know, tapering, peaking and, and the like. Um, so, yeah, I found that really interesting that there's sort of seeing really two different sides to that mindset.
0: Yeah. Mm. It's, a, it's a fascinating one, I reckon. And um, it's it's certainly something that we've um, – or that I've been watching a bit through the whole process. And, you know, that, that point you made there around um, – some some people being able to look at it and go, oh, brilliant, finally a block of time where I can work on something. It reminds me, I was working with a sport going back a year or so where they were doing like an individual performance plan with an athlete and it was it was a sport that's a very technical sport um, and it's a sport where there's a lot of overseas competitions and the athletes and the coaches in that sport are kind of used and accustomed to going overseas and, and, and um, taking part in these big competitions as as a routine and they're almost they go back to back to back and they they laid out this training program and for whatever reason they couldn't go to a couple and so there was this there was like an eight or nine week block and i had a smile on my face and they said oh what's that about and i, and I said i look at your program and it's like it's all mess and then oh there's finally a block of time where i can actually do some training and and that's sort of like the i think the rowing coaching mentality or the rows mentality of It's great doing these competitions, but geez, you like getting a block of time to sink into some work. So, yeah, some definitely have utilized that.
1: Yeah, I've I've seen that exact thing and it does appear, at least from what I've observed, to be a big difference between your physiology sports and more your decision-making, technical, tactical type of sports um, where they really rely on the competition almost as sort of part of their their training and preparation. Um, You know, in the big physiology-based sports, a lot of that, preparation is done in training and the events are done more from a benchmarking point of view and ensuring, yep, we're on track against our competitors and so on. Um, So yeah, I've sort of noticed that as well, that that perhaps those other more sort of decision-making technical sports have struggled with that a little bit more. Mm.
2: There's another one there. There's two. So the stair climbing world is used to having races every weekend and with travel off off the Cards. There's a lot of people who have never done (laughs) continual training. It's usually just race, race every weekend because racing is hard training, right? Yeah. So um, there's a lot of people who are really craving uh, a bit of a a hit out on the stairs. But um, like people are saying, they've never had this much time to do some aerobic base work, which is probably a good idea.
0: Yeah, no doubt. And look, I think one of the things that that, – and you you hear this, this is one you do here on Twitter where – and particularly early in the um, in the pandemic shutdowns around the world, where you know people were lamenting the removal of competitions. What are we going to do? What, what am I going to do without worlds? You know, it's been so hard having that. The start of the footy season taken away from me, and 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 there was you know, and and, and I know there's been a lot of effort gone into the the wellness side, the the um, mental wellness of athletes, preparing them for that. But part of the Part of the question that that definitely raises in my mind is, is that an indication perhaps that in some ways we collectively that there's been a drift away from just focusing on those incremental changes that happen, you know, every day if you train really well, and, and that being enough. And the observation that I made is, and you know, we always seem to refer to Drew, so we'll probably have to get Drew in on the on the podcast at some stage. But I noticed last week, I think he posted he sort of got a, an, an all-time pb um, threshold power output uh, you're going to correct me here rod is that right
1: not threshold
0: so the, the hour S- it was
1: 60 minutes power not, 60 not minutes power threshold no sorry i couldn't i can't you know i can't just sit here and accept that thanks sorry <laughs> I'll, go, I'll go back on mute
0: no, that's okay. Thanks, mate. Oh, um,
1: I was just gonna say if you didn't press that nerve, next stop you. Back to back to mute. Sorry, <laughs> listeners.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, he he's a yeah, he's he's very athletic, but he is not an athlete, right? But he trains every day, and he's he's all about increment. And I
2: think he'll thing, always be an athlete, Bill.
0: He'll always be an athlete, no doubt. But I love it's what he posted. He said, you know, it was like. Something It was something along the lines of 30 minutes of threshold a day is, is sort of the recipe sort of thing. And and, <laughs> and that's all he does is he just tries to smash himself for like 30 minutes and, and tries to make sure he gets that done yeah. however he can get it done. And he's done a, essentially a lifetime PB.
2: Yeah, he set himself a goal. And part of motivation is about having a purpose. And if your goal is the Olympic Games and that purpose has been taken away from you, you know, temporarily... To a date down the track, you have to find a new purpose, yeah. and that might be the incremental gains that you can make every day, or that might be um, breaking it down into shorter blocks and training like it's you know four months away, five months away, and actually reframing w- when the when the goal is, but it's about being very clear about what your purpose is right now, and I think that's exactly the the second group of athletes you were referring to, Rod, I think that that would be the way to go about it yeah.
1: Yeah. And I think it really shows the difference in the mindset around the process mindset versus the outcome mindset as well. Mm. And, you know, not having worked with Drew when he was an athlete, but sort of being around him when he was part of the team in a coaching role and whatnot, you kind of get that sense from him. It's like, I'm, I'm following the process. This is my process. And I just want to get better every single day. And it wasn't, you know, at the very front of his mind, it wasn't necessarily the Olympic Games. It was just, I've got to get better today. This is my process. I've got to get better today. Um, yeah. And, you know, perhaps that, and coaches talk about that and we sort of use buzzwords and all those sorts of things around being, you know, process orientated and, you know, not outcome orientated and that sort of thing. But this is a really good example where that could be, you know, really, really important to, to refresh again.
0: Yeah. Yep. No, I agree. But it is, it, is a, it is a challenge, I think, for some athletes, particularly who set themselves up for their final year. There's no doubt about that. Those who, were, who 2020 was going to be retirement, and they'd, particularly those that had life set up outside of, of sport to start, those who were thinking that this next two weeks or when the Paralympics were on in a, in a month's time, essentially, was going to mark the, the, um, the climax, I guess, of their athletic um, pursuits, and then they were going to go and get on with their um, formal careers, and had things lined up. I think that that's where there is some significant anxiety, mm. but it is an interesting refresher back onto, you know, sometimes it's just enough to get a bit better every day, and you know, and that's actually at the end of the day, that's part of the benefit that sport brings to society is is encouraging that that ethos of just chasing a little bit every day.
1: Mm. And we have we have seen, you know, I think we saw one of the the female cyclists you know, retire just a week or so ago. So, yeah. you know, unfortunately we are, you know, we are seeing that, you know, somebody who's worked really hard for f- probably, you know, well over four years, but obviously the last four years to prepare for these games and, you know, one reason or another, just not able to, to carry on for the final year. So yeah, it, it must be really disappointing for them.
0: Yeah. And there'll be a few, but, um, you know, at, at the end of the day, um, I guess that the biggest thing is um, the show must go on in, in one sense. And we, Know, there is a bit of spirit that comes out of just trying to find a way through.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, so the next one I think carries on quite well from the last one, which was is about when you have a change of circumstances and um, you are asked to reconsider your identity um, as a person in sport and, and what that role is at the moment in this current time and place in the world. Um, identity as an athlete or a coach... Or a support staff member is really important. and I think if you uh, are asked to reframe that, it's it's how you manage um, everyone's well-being in that space. Um, so I think I think if you look at a definition of what is what is being well, what is well-being in a person, it's it's definitely physical, it's looking after your mental health, it's psychological, and it's also social. So, part of that psychological and social part of it is, is your identity. So when, when that identity is taken away, having another role that you can also identify with, which might be a career role, but it also might be, you know, I might be a sister, I might be a family member, I might be a student, I might have a job, I might be a, a good friend, I might be a mother, I might also have another role. Now everyone has more than one role. So it's it's about sort of understanding what your identity is as an athlete but also who else you are and a lot of time as an athlete you don't have to actually think about who else I am when you're in when you're in the trenches and when you're just trying to be an athlete
0: yeah and I guess we often talk about um, the performance benefits of the you know dual career support from from the sports system from coaches in particular of athletes enabling them to 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 thrive in other areas of their lives. And I think a lot lot of the time it gets discussed as being a nice to do for the athlete for their long term. But perhaps what you're touching on is, this is when the rub comes, when when, this is obviously an extraordinarily extreme situation, but there's always ups and downs and Mm. particularly downs in athletic careers. And in the down times, if they have momentum in the rest of their life, it carries them forward. So there's a real performance reason for, Mm. encouraging that um dual career investment
2: yeah you're shining a light on the other parts of the person which are going to be really useful at every other ebb and flow of their career you always have to have a couple of balls in the air if you're juggling so you've got your sport but having something else on the side means that when you can't do your sport to 100 percent of capacity then you've got some other part of you that is keeping on going and gives you identity and gives you a purpose that's not taking away from the commitment that you have as an athlete, but it just does buoy you through those ups and downs as you ride the rough seas, you know?
0: Yeah, yeah. And potentially it enables you to come back into it more easily.
1: Mm. And, you know, as a support person to to a lot of athletes, you definitely see that. Um, you know, it, for those who sport is their entire identity, if for one reason or another sport isn't going well, you know, they might be injured or they might be performing badly or whatever it might be, their whole life is in disarray, mm. um, you know, but when they've got other things on, whether it be work or, you know, social things or study or whatever, that, you know, if sport's not going perfectly at the moment, that's okay because I'm still good at these things too. Um, yeah, I've definitely noticed that with athletes and how important that can be.
2: That mm. You you raise a really good point there about when you're injured because usually when, when an athlete gets injured, that's the first time they have to consider any of this stuff. Um so let's think of COVID as a practice. <laughs> no.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. I, I think it's a really important area. And, it, you know, the, the one thing I've always felt in that space is we don't talk about the performance benefits of it enough. Like it, it's, I think it's really obvious that we have a responsibility to athletes to ensure that they have the time to create uh, viability in all of their lives. But if you took that away, there's a really strong performance imperative for doing it, because everyone gets injured, everyone has form slumps, everyone has mm. you know pandemics come along, whatever it is. Yeah. if um, you're
2: talking about a performance question, I think we've had good good conversations bill about how you need to periodise that as well. So there are times in an athlete's career where, sorry, but you just need to get more volume done. So uni can be yeah. part time, or you might just have one subject on the side. Or when you go overseas to do your training camp overseas, you're actually not going to do any uni at all because these three months you're just going to train full full on. But then there might be other times when you know the balance flips the other way and we can do some efficient training. Rod, like you know we're talking about with with Josh Dunkley Smith last week and. And some Josh Booth, some of the, the HIT work that you can, you've done that's a time efficient training, a different stimulus, so that they can get some other stuff done in their life.
0: No, I think it's it's probably really important. So one of the areas that, that I did pick up, and this one did come from directly from Twitter, and it was early on in the in the lockdown phase of the the first lockdown phase of the pandemic, not necessarily just in Australia but but worldwide. There was some commentary And some really robust discussions let's say from and and they were sports science service providers who work in in bigger teams internationally and and it was like throwing around comments like oh and the coaches are struggling to find their their place in this because you know they don't know what to do and they're they're trying to make things up and I, i remember someone commenting saying you know and most of it's ineffective or something like that and i thought it was an interesting observation and obviously something that was real to them but my observation has been that whilst early on in the in the lockdown, no doubt it was um, a lot of it was it was driven. The success of of being able to get things working was actually um, physically done by members of the teams it is probably it comes down to you know the success of that comes down to some coaches who've who've really engaged well with their their network the sort of tentacles of their network and then can sort of allow those people to shine in that time and that i guess that's the whole the whole benefit of investing heavily into your support team because then they understand your philosophy really clearly and um in these moments of pressure then they're not having to second guess they they can confidently go on with a bit of imprimatur and, and, and make things happen for the coaches. and The coach might not be f- physically active doing stuff like they were, but they can be quite comfortable that the levers they've been um, pulling all along are actually gonna serve them pretty well
2: now. Are you talking about having support staff able to you know, analyse you know heart rate variability data and oh, some of the data points, and then prescribe. Is that what so you're talking about?
0: Th- well, that's that's some of the minutiae of it, I suppose. But just in broad terms, if if we if if we say in two weeks' time, everything's going to change. Our whole training environment's got to change and we've got to make it happen, and a whole lot of decisions have to happen. If, if the coach then has to micromanage oh, every yeah. one of those decisions, it's gonna take months to get that done. But if they've been working hand in glove with their support team the whole time, then intuitively, like as an example, like the S&C guy knows exactly what they need to get on with and probably do 90% of it right before they need to check back in with the coaches.
2: Yeah, right, okay. And as I- far as just setting people up to be able to train. Just simply,
0: yeah, to get on with the next thing, or to to adapt and overcome this sort of situation. And equally, you know, it sounds like there's no doubt there has been some coaches out there who've who must have struggled a bit to to generate that observation on Twitter. That that must have been sort of sitting there going, "Well, what do I do if I don't actually get to stand in front of the athlete?" and you know, you just use my presence or just use my um, the gravitas that I have as the person I am to influence them. How do I influence them through other people and other mechanisms? Um, and so I reckon it's it's been really interesting to see some of that come out and there was quite a – you know, I, I brought it up because there was quite a bit of talk on Twitter and I, I remember sort of thinking, well, I don't know. Like I think, you know, the, the coaches that are really heavily invested with their support service team – will find that this is now when they reap the rewards of that investment. They reap the rewards of bringing those people in and trusting them because now they'll they'll be able to get on and do these things without needing to be micromanaged at any level.
2: Mm, yeah, oh, but it's, it's super complex. Like um, the AIS um, return to sport uh, blueprint that's been put out that was well discussed on a Sports Medicine Australia webinar last week was all about looking around you and understanding how different people adapt to this stressful situation. So some will snap into action and do things quickly. Others will be looking like a rabbit at headlights, like kind of like, what do I do next? And it's about being patient and about being adaptable and allowing people to move at the p- at the pace they're ready to move at into this brand new world. I mean, we, we've had the luxury of the big events be pushed back. So there has been a little bit of time available for people to work out how they're going to go about this. Mm-hmm. And it's personality type. Some people are ready to snap into action. Others are going to be super anxious and super cautious about any kind of return to group training. Um, and, and it's been really well discussed yep. and I'm really glad people have um, gone and and made you be aware about how, how some people are really excited to change and adapt and other people don't like change and are actually going to adapt really slowly. So that conversation on Twitter is really nuanced and Twitter's not very good at being nuanced. No. But, yeah, really it, it's about the coach but it's about each individual coach's way that they'll adapt as well.
1: Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So, Bill, if you put your, your coaching hat back on, and you're back in the rowing program, you know, a few years ago. How do you think that you would have dealt with this? What sort of process would you have taken, do you think?
0: Um, and I don't know if we mentioned this once before, but to start with, I think when we first locked down, I had to go and get my new glasses done and I go and see Phoebe Stanley, who used to be one of our athletes, and so she's an optometrist. And I remember going in to, to have the test done and and sort of I'd, we'd just come out of meetings where with one of our um, – Sporting partners where they were frantically trying to get things set up because it was a lot of pressure to get a lot done in a quick amount of time. And the comment she made to me is like, oh, I'd just be taking a breather right now. I'd go and do <laughs> some other training. Mm. I'd train hard, but I'd be, I'd be thanking my lucky stars that I got a break. So I do think the first thing and being mindful of the fact that we never allow enough time for recovery, I don't think for hard training athletes in, in a sport like rowing, would have been to try and take advantage of the chance to rejuvenate people a little bit. And then that buys you a bit more time to make um, decisions about um, how you want to roll things back um, and, and how you're going to refocus things. It's super hypothetical though, because I think when you're under pressure, like imagine at, at the start we weren't talking about how, oh, the Olympic Games are obviously not going to happen. People were thinking it's going to happen a couple of months later. You know, we've got to qualify. If you're figuring all that sort of stuff out you know i'd love to think that you'd have that um, poise to be able to go how do we how do we take advantage of what this situation's offering up for us a little bit here um, and and certainly in 2020 i think 2020 hindsight that is not 2020 the year <laughs> 2020 <laughs> hindsight i would say is take a breath have a break do something different for a block of time and then reframe it all around Focusing in on those incremental changes, and stop talking so much about the competition stuff, because the reality is the competition stuff might not be around for quite some time, so we've got to get our we 've got to get our heads around being great at developing competitors without them being able to compete you know because mm-hmm. yeah. competitiveness is such a big thing in sport, but you know you can compete against yourself at anything and and get furious about missing any tiny little benchmark if you get your head right around it. So to be probably trying to create ways of, of doing that, and I think we've seen really good examples of that. Um, you know, people that have, uh, and we, sp- we spoke about Drew just before, but that, that Drew's just a really obvious example of of somebody who sets little incremental things for themselves and try to jump over those hurdles. You know, every day.
2: Yeah, I think more people have Everested over the past couple of uh, months than ever before as well. I don't know the stats, but Yeah. Uh, if you give people yeah, space and, and time to work create with a gym goal gym as well, actually <laughs> interestingly.
0: Yeah. But you think straight away, like you think, right, we were going into a racing competition phase we're not going into a racing competition phase we never get enough time to do strength training let's do some strength training can we can we do five strength sessions a week for a block of time see if we can make some wholesale gains in that area Mm. Uh, while we're doing that gee we we can't do much else we can't do any um any uh, hands-on physical treatments but we can do a heap of pilates so we'll do a lot of movement stuff in tandem with some of the you know, strength things to try and improve balance and mobility and things, you know, there's, you Mm. just start thinking of things you never really get to, but you know, have performance benefits and start trying to, trying to, you know, utilize them, I would say.
1: Yeah. And I I think we've seen the athletes that were able to do exactly as what Max said before in terms of recognizing the things that they can control and trying to go about and control those things. Um, Because, with this pandemic there's so much stuff that's up in the air that we just cannot control. But if we're focusing on, you know, when's our next competition going to be, how am I going to prepare from that competitive standpoint? Uh, You know, you can wrap yourself in in knots potentially. Um, But you know, the ones that have said, okay, well, this is the scenario that we're in. These are the things that I can control and set about putting a plan in place to improve in those areas have done really well. But, you know, as, as Max said, it's such a nuanced Discussion and sort of argument and that sort of thing because, you know, initially we didn't know if the Olympics were going to be cancelled. We, we kind of did have to press on, despite most of us really suspecting that they would be postponed. We, we did have to press on like they were going to occur as normal, um, you know, and that put a lot of pressure on a lot of people. Um, uh, but then also something to consider is that the pressure that everybody's going on uh, that, that's, that people are under at the moment in their job or in their, their sport, there's potentially even bigger pressures going on with them in their family lives, mm-hmm. you know, like schooling children, anxiety around, you know, potentially um, contracting the virus, et cetera, et cetera. So as you say, Bill, like, you know, it's easy to think, yep, I'd be poised and this is how I'd go about mm-hmm. it. But, it, yeah, it's uh, not not so simple, eh? No. No, not at all. But it's, it
0: is a bit of a – it's a reminder that sometimes – you know, what is it they say? Like any decision is better than no decision. And sometimes just making, just going "Nah, this is the bold decision we're gonna make versus twiddling your thumbs is is the better course of action. Um, I don't know if I would have used that at all, but that's what I would be telling myself if I was going back, you know, be bold, make a bold decision, you know, see the wood for the trees sort of thing.
1: Mm. And what, what about you, Mac? If you're thinking from your sort of your athlete perspective, yeah, what do you, how do you think that you might have approached it?
2: Uh, I think, well, w- coming from a sport of rowing, you would try and find a way to row, so um, you can always socially distance and get on on the water. But you, I guess, I would have tried to structure a, a training program to to get more ergo and aerobic work done, and then do as much strength work as I can at home. I mean, I I like running, so I would have done a lot of cross training probably. Um, the world of zwift there's always bike i I guess
0: you could have worked on some flexibility
2: plenty of options i would have (laughs) definitely not chosen to do that (laughs) uh yeah but yeah i i was always doing university while i was rowing so um i would have found the the medical side of it during the pandemic just fascinating i mean this is a once in a hundred year event that sweeps through. And um, when I, I'm at the moment, glued, yeah, we hope. At the moment, I'm fairly glued to a lot of content that's coming out of the emergency medicine world. And um, as much information as I can get about what's happening on the ground in the hospitals. Um, and I, I don't think I would have only wanted to do sport at this time because um, there's, it's a pretty incredible world event. And I would have wanted to understand how it was working from an epidemiological point of view. And I would have really wanted to understand how they were developing treatments around it and how we're going to control it because I still find it a massive mystery.
1: So back to to Bill's first point around the coaching aspect to it, you were always one that was really engaged in the coaching and support team, I guess, you know, sort of really fed off that it it seemed and really bought into the process. How do you think you might have gone with that? aspect of, it, of not being able to see your coach uh, you know not being able to see your you know physiologist or strength and condition coach etc
2: yeah that's actually a really good point really challenging i think part of motivation for me was always that i was going to turn up in the morning and i'd have a team there so so to go and do it on your own really that that's a very good point it's it's, it's very challenging to Unless you have extremely good technological ways already set up, so you can you have ways of logging your training and you know someone's going to be watching it, or you have regular meetups where you have some like video conferencing reviews. Um, I don't think all that technology was always used, but um, certainly in the last couple of years of my career, we were very good at that stuff. So I would have had to stay well connected with my team.
0: You know what's what is interesting that that comes to mind there is that I am aware of a number of. Um, squads who found benefit of just connecting for five minutes on Teams or Zoom or whatever before a training session. Yeah. Before separately going for a run or whatever it was while they're in, in ISO.
2: Well, you'd get out of bed, wouldn't you?
0: Yeah. And that's what they found. It was it was centering. It gave people a reason just to quickly connect. The coach could do a quick briefing. And I think going into that, we would have thought that was just meh. But I think now super
2: important as an athlete, if you were a runner, that's exactly what you'd do.
0: So I I imagine now, and this one is interesting, Rod. To this point, is is if I was if I was coaching a uh, an athlete that was overseas, I would see much more obvious benefit in actually making the effort to speak to them on Zoom before they went out and did something, before they went out for a training session. Whereas previously, I might have just thought. I oh, will catch up on email afterwards yeah. and they'll let me know and you know, they know what's on the program and that sort of stuff. And it reminds me of you know when, um, when Sarah was crook and I didn't go to the Olympic trials in 2016 and we did those um, FaceTime every, every night, the athlete yeah, debriefs. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It, whilst it certainly was no substitute for being, being there, it was actually a lot better than nothing. So mm. yeah, sometimes we underestimate just the value of just those little connections. Yeah, mm.
1: and I mean being in the room with the athletes while we were on FaceTime to you I could tell they got a lot out of that. Um I still I still will, you know, die saying that that 2 week period, you know, week long period was really easy. I found coaching <laughs> um, really really easy. Um, just just for the benefit of everyone Rod came I back as white as have a ghost that text message. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, I know that you don't have any text messages saying it was the hardest week of my life.
2: Um, <laughs> <laughs> that, uh, I mean, it's a great
1: point. And, and uh, funnily enough, it, with the VIS Physiology Group, we were doing just that as well to start our days. And uh, we're not doing it as frequently now, but we were doing every single day, Monday to Friday, just a 15-minute catch-up, 10 to 10, 15 it was in our team's calendar. Um, if you couldn't make it that day, you you know, you didn't have to, it didn't didn't really matter. And we started off talking about some of the things we were gonna work on for the day or for the for the week or whatever, and then by the end of it we were just basically making fun of Nick Owen. But um, <laughs> you know, it was it was just good he for stopped the, turning the, up. <laughs> the connection. Nick doesn't listen to this, it's fine. <laughs> um So Yeah. Yeah, no, it was just good just good for that that connection each morning.
0: There's no doubt, I think we've learned that um, there's much greater value into the um, the online connection, visual connection than we, well, I think we underestimated it previously and mm. yeah, we probably won't going forward.
1: So off the back of that, and Mac, you sort of asked the question around monitoring HRV and, and things like that from a support person point of view, the one thing I've noticed is that, for whatever reason, whether it be the culture of the sport or the experience of the practitioner or, you know, all sorts of different reasons that will determine why certain systems might be more advanced than others. But those who have got really good monitoring systems in place have really, it's almost been, you know, all systems go and not too many blips in the road with getting an understanding of where their athletes are up to, what they're doing, how they're responding to what they're doing and so on. And the others, um, you know, maybe struggling a little bit more um, to support their athletes in that way. So yeah, I think um, it's, it's an important thing. And, you know, again, there's lots of reasons why things might be really well set up or, or not as advanced. Um, but yeah, I guess what, what have you guys seen in that sort of area?
0: Yeah, I one one that I saw that I thought was really interesting was, um, I saw someone on, on again. I think it, was, it might have been on LinkedIn. They were they were spruiking the the fact I think the um, NBA in America were going to use the the That's ring again
2: today
1: practice games. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. spousion
0: sixes. I oh, know threes. <laughs> um, they, you watched
2: the whole documentary. I did. <laughs> I enjoyed <laughs> the it. The last dance. Um, oh, that wasn't even did you the, say MBL. NBA?
0: What's the name of the ring that that um, that that transmits um, and Oh the reco- Aura ring? Aura. Yes, there we go. So they, you know, they were they were they were talking about systemically introducing that to measure to help track athletes because they just like Whoop, they'd seen some trends in their data that they felt could indicate I either either both or one or the other of onset of um, COVID-19 or recovery from it once, once someone had come off it based on looking at cardiac um, rhythms and combination of that with the respiratory or stuff, respiratory, right? which yeah. is really interesting stuff um, in itself.
1: What about mild disease?
0: Well, I don't know, but I'm that, that's, that's, not, that's not necessarily what I'm, what I'm saying here, but what, what I am saying
1: well, I is- I, I can maybe partially answer that, Mac. The, the key thing that they were seeing, the difference was in respiratory rate and that's why it might be different to some of the you know resting heart rate or HRV measures that you might see mm. in in other, um, you know, other diseases, diseases yeah. et cetera.
2: Yeah, oh, there's there's no doubt that COVID uh, affects the respiratory tract preferentially, but so might the flu or how, no, how can they differentiate? No, but that, that was what they,
0: without getting into it and maybe we could try and get someone from WHOOP to yeah. come and talk to us about it, but... Um, <laughs> It was actually quite specifically around um, that that was a difference between the seasonal flu, I think, and COVID-19 was Mm. the onset of how that affected their respiratory rate.
1: Mm. Yeah, and they've they've actually published it. They've they've published a study on it. It came out a couple of weeks ago, and I think they had something like 80% accuracy of you know, of detecting. I don't think they were. You know, they weren't doing it in real time, but the model that they developed um, predicted accurately eighty percent of the time after you know five days of symptoms or, or whatever it might be. And that you know, they looked pre-symptomatic and you know, as the symptom onset. So actually, yeah. the other there.
2: morning, Bill, you looked at your Garmin data, didn't you? Was it worked out and you said your respiratory rate was up overnight? You're freaking out.
1: I was freaking out.
0: <laughs> it dropped straight back down. I wasn't freaking out. You were. Um, but i mean that's an interesting point because it is hard to start monitoring when you need it and it's i think we've said this before you know the the things like monitoring can be very ho-hum and can virtually never be actually useful or can have limited use a lot of the time but then in the clutch situation it becomes the most important thing that you desperately need and there has been I know, if reading around Twitter and being observant of the system, there has been plenty of people, you know, scurrying to try and get control of their um, monitoring systems, but then not having that background data to be able to compare it to. So, you know, how relevant is it? And you know, I, one thing I do hope. Um, certainly, for all the athletes that we deal with, is that this adds another reason why, just systemically, having this as part of what we do is is important.
2: Yeah, they recognise that 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 it's worth investing the time to submit your AMS data and to wear your monitoring devices and all that, these kind
1: of things. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly.
1: Yeah, and there's a couple of things in that, like setting up a monitoring system takes a lot of time. You know, if you're going to get it right all the different bits and pieces that need to be in place to monitor an athlete, you know, fairly holistically. It's pretty, it it takes a lot of time to get to put that in place and then get the buy-in from the athletes and the coaches. And then as you sort of say, have enough baseline data over a period of, you know, ideally you've got months and months of it to really get an understanding of, well, not just having the data there, but then as the person overseeing that data, actually understanding what it means it's one thing to have a year's worth of data but if you don't actually understand what it means with that athlete in the context of whatever they're doing and how they're responding then it's kind of not as valuable um but yeah sort of having that those sort of things as you say more often than not you're kind of just looking at them going yep this is looking like it is Mm. meant to look this is what i expected yeah this is sort of what i expected um not a single athlete will go through their career where at some point in time having that information will be useful. I mean no athlete goes through an entire career without getting injured. No athlete goes through a career without at one point in time maybe not responding to the training the way they hoped or whatever it might be. Um,
2: Oh, and and you just having that quite simply there's no competition goals at the moment. So what are you measuring? You've got to have something to measure. If you're looking for incremental gains, you have to have some data saying this is what I was doing last week and now this is what I'm doing this week.
0: Yeah, that's true. And, you know, the example that from my um, experience that I'll often use is that coaching the pair in 2012 and having uh, the injury so significantly with, um, you know, four months to go and having to manage an athlete through... A surgery with a month to go and that sort of thing, because we had a number of years of really accurate data on what those athletes were doing. Typically, we were able then to reorganise a training program that effectively catered for the the actual needs of the the athletes when they couldn't do what we wanted them to do, and it was a godsend. It was it was you know. I'm sure we could have made a plan without it, but it gave us so much confidence around what the plan we were doing um, was and how effective it was going to be. And I think that it was irreplaceable when when that when it all came down to it. And and I'm you know we spent three years building habits in the athletes to collect this stuff um, routinely um, without really ever using it to that level, and then you know suddenly it's the it's the biggest the biggest thing for a moment.
2: And everyone draws confidence from what they're doing because they can look back on what they have done. I think that's really important to set someone up with the right confidence that actually we're on track.
0: Yeah, yep, absolutely.
2: Hey Rod, I was just um, having a think though about research at the moment in in sports science and sports uh, medicine, so A lot of work was probably going to be set up leading into the Olympics, um, but we obviously can't do quite a lot of it based on physical distancing rules and the way the sport is structured at the moment. So what are we seeing in the research world? Um, I've seen some stuff on Twitter, but
1: what have you observed? Yeah, really interesting question, quite timely, because I was just chatting with some researchers earlier today. And, yeah, I mean, things have obviously changed quite a lot. Um, You know, by and large, all – you know from a sport performance point of view you know all testing research you know laboratory based research field based research etc has just come to a complete halt um you know thankfully some of the projects that are we've got students in you know uh, in different phases like they've either just collected they mm-hmm. finish collecting they're in analysis um, mode all that sort of thing um so our projects haven't been affected yet, but certainly others have, you know, things come in a complete halt. Um, but yeah, what, what we're seeing a lot of, and again, to refer back to the Twitter thing, is I'm seeing a lot more um, survey-based yeah. research. Um, you know, so it might be, you know, a lot of wellbeing type, um, you know, athlete wellbeing type research coming across filling out surveys around those sorts of things. Um, you know, a whole range of different topics with regards to, uh, yeah, basically getting people's opinions on how do you approach this problem or, Mm. you know, how do you coach this thing? Um, and then another really big one is, the the big data retrospective analysis into big data sets and there's uh. quite a bit more going on into that. So data that's already been collected that you don't have to collect, um, you know, getting some, some good data scientist minds around, okay, how can we make it a little bit more out of this data, um, whether it be, you know, machine learning, AI, you know, retrospective type analyses. Mm. Um, and then I've even seen one study, um, again, on Twitter, where they were looking... To do some Zwift based um, yeah. research. So, actually, you know, some actual physical performance and, and physiological measurement based testing over Zwift. Um, right. So, yeah, I mean, that opens up a whole can of worms around people's yeah. um, bikes and power meters being you know, valid or not. And yeah, mine's, mine's underreporting and
0: 100%. <laughs> um, I'm yeah. sending
1: mine back. <laughs> yeah. So,
0: no,
2: I mean, but that's where all the data is at the difference. moment, isn't it?
0: yeah isn't that interesting though so it's it's just like we were saying earlier about athletes maybe getting the chance to do things they never get to like that's essentially the same thing in science like you never get a chance to maybe actually go and interrogate that data in in the ways you've always wanted to because there are other imperatives and some people are taking advantage of the time now to 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 actually do that so we Mm -hmm. might actually learn some stuff we never we never would have got to
1: Yes, yeah, certainly. I think I referred to it last time or one of the last times that we all caught up was um, a project that you know, my, Nick, uh, myself and Nick are trying to get off the ground. So we've had this idea on the back burner for ages, but never had the time or space to really think about what we wanted to do with it, who we wanted to engage to, to help us and what the methodology would be and so on. And, and now we're catching up every couple of weeks to really nut that all out. And, you know, we've got somebody else on board there and, you um, yeah, it's given us a lot of time to actually progress that study, which mm. we wanted to do for ages and just kind of been sitting there.
2: Yeah, it's a really interesting That's point. Cool. We did the same, Rod. So uh, off the back of the female athlete project from 2019, we've had we've had some time to um, collect some information off the elite athletes training for the games next year um, about menstrual cycle and performance and about how they always manage themselves. So that kind of work never needs to be done. It's not a it's not a physiological database collection study it's an observational um it's a, a, a it's a yeah it's a, it's just gathering perceptual data yeah. from people so we yeah we made use of the time
1: to get that rolled out as well but um i saw that I, you tweeted that alice well done i think i retweeted it <laughs> it was a Twitter. It's had to been <laughs> God.
2: Uh yeah so ending on a, on a final note i guess the last one we we're talking about was and We all love sport, and sport is pretty much the reason why we do the work we do. Um, But you know, we've been pretty lucky, I think, over the last. Well, I've been around for uh, a couple of decades now, and you've been around for a couple more, and um, (laughs) we've had a pretty good innings. And I saw a really. (laughs)
0: Is that it? (laughs) We've had a pretty good innings.
2: No, this comes back to a piece I saw on Facebook actually, which was about. You're very lucky to have been born at the time you were born where we've come off the back of a few decades of pretty serious development. Um, we've been privileged to have a very low levels of war, very low levels of disease. And we've been able to travel extensively. We've um, developed ways of zipping around the world whenever we need to. We go overseas for a week or a couple of days to race and then we come back home. Such a privileged way of, of living. And this piece on Facebook was, was about COVID-19 if you were born in 1900 and it starts off with you know if you were born in the year 1900 you would be age 14 by the time the first um, world war started when 37 million people died around the world which was a large number at that stage and then only four years later um, the Spanish flu hits in 1918 and um Then you're going along and then we have polio, scarlet fever, diphtheria, all these things we haven't actually got cures for at this stage. Um, And then the Great Depression hits when you're 29 years old and goes for 10 years. And then um, when you're 39, World War II starts, when 3% of the world's population um, are killed. Um, We haven't even got to the Asian flu and the Hong Kong flu and AIDS and HIV, but these are all things that people... (laughs) have had to live through at various intervals when if you were born in 1900 so i'm coming across this for the first time in in my you know 30 something years but um we've been pretty lucky we
0: have been lucky there's no doubt and you know there was that commentary i think around So you know because for those that aren't in melbourne um we're wearing masks everywhere now um we've got I think we're down to about four hundred cases a day, but um, we're on the full mask. I know there are places in the around the world that are doing ten thousand a day, and <laughs> maybe considering starting to do something about it. But you're on the
2: half mask.
0: Yeah, I feel like we're on the edge of not doing enough. But um, you know, people are saying, you know, imagine the people in the blitz. You know, the one or two people who refuse to turn their lights off at night, and and you know, and therefore running the risk of all of those around them doing the right thing. You know, it's a, it's. It's, it's really sharpened the focus on our community responsibility, I think, that you know, yeah. we, we've been fortunate to not have to worry about in our, in our lifetime. And, um, and the other side of it is, I think you know, we were talking to the kids this morning um, about this is, you know, some of the memories from this, although, it, you know, it's a horrendous thing and it's been, you know, devastating for so many people, um it's it's going to be one of those learning moments that we'll remember for the rest of our lives, and it's it's important to also be present and and take that in if we can if we're in situations where we we're not under so much pressure that we we don't yeah. get to take it in.
2: Yeah, and you know if it was all if life was all about surviving and just um, getting by then it probably wouldn't be that exciting. But you know having lofty goals like Olympics and um being better, basically just every day trying to perform a bit better, be. Uh, get a bit faster get a bit stronger be a, a better family member all these things like at least that gives you a reason to to keep trying to improve so we're not discounting the the place of sport in the world but it, sometimes it is just important to recognize that um, we have had it really good and this is just this is just what we're ro- rolling through at the moment
0: I agree well said well said well it's nice to finish on a positive note there Dr. Mack, a very uh, open and positive note. Um, so our first our first ISO re re ISO episode um, with Rodney online. Um, I think it's gone pretty well. To be honest, well done. Yeah, you well two. done
2: to the technicians. Yeah.
1: Did mm. only talked over each other a couple of times. I think. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We'll, we'll get our system. We'll get figured ahead it out. Of it. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Um, and we've got a few lined up coming up. So, Doc, um, tell us uh, what we've got lined up over the next couple of weeks with episodes coming.
2: Yeah, I'm really excited. We've got a sports medicine-focused one, a research piece. Uh, we're waiting that the great Dr Larissa Treese to come on. Uh, she'll have to do it ISO style as well, I think, because the borders won't be open. She will. She can't cross borders. Yep. Um, and she's going to talk about the, the research piece, piece that her and Kelly Wilkie and Ivan Hooper – and uh, it was also Greg Lovell and Mick Drew put together. And it's looking at the injuries across, the, across two Olympic cycles in, in rowers. And so we'll be talking about sports medicine injury and everything rowing.
0: Yeah, that one's going to be pretty epic.
1: Spoiler alert, not only injuries. I'm really interested to talk to her about the illness side of things as well. Oh, no more illness. It's a really big part of it.
2: Too much chat on illness now. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, but that would be good. <laughs> yeah,
0: it's going to be a ripper. So look out for that one. And I think we also mentioned earlier we've got Rowie Webster lined up, of um, course, captain of the Stingers and one of the great water polo players that Australia's, you know, really ever produced and one of the great people too. And we had such a positive reaction from um, our interview series with Josh Dunkley-Smith. Um, it would be great to hear from people around the athletes that that they would like to hear from. Um, we we will try and do a bit of a deeper delve into into what makes them tick, like we did with Josh, and I reckon Rowie. Will, yeah, Rowie will be great. Rowie's going to bring yeah. a lot to the table. She's a ripper. Rowie's
1: awesome. It's going to be really good. Yeah. And yeah. swimming down to my beach, I just learned.
0: Yeah, that's like right. you said
1: earlier. Yeah, exactly. With I the might whale. Have to pop down with my mask on. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, 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 you can go and uh, say today. Take Rufus for his uh, daily exercise. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Essential exercise.
0: Essential exercise. Well, thanks everybody. Don't forget to follow us online. The Bro Show podcast. Uh, look for the Doc Doc Goose episodes on all of your um, podcast feeds, and we'll be back very very soon.